Well, if you'd open your Bibles up to 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 and 12. 11 and 12 in 1 Peter. And let me introduce it just with this thought, that, that we know that and have to lay hold of the fact that a transformed life is what gives credibility to our witness of the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church's witness is as strong as her life is pure and holy. The truth of the gospel is as powerful to an unbelieving world as much as it is reflected in our own lives. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's Romans 1. It is the truth about God and about Christ by which he brings about that miracle of regeneration, by which he creates faith in the heart of unbelief, faith in Christ, which he produces repentance. The gospel is alone powerful enough under the influence of the Holy Spirit for all of those things. And it is a unique message among all of the religions of the world. The message of Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection stands unique and towers above them all. Only in Christ is the accomplishment of God for our salvation complete and accomplished, promised hundreds, even thousands of years before he came, verified through all of the history of man, authenticated in his resurrection so that all are without excuse who deny it. That is a powerful message. But it's a message that's either authenticated, that's either strengthened or weakened by the testimony of us who proclaim to believe it. In other words, by the church, by Christians. Why would anybody believe our witness to these glorious truths, to God as creator, to his holiness, to his worthiness, to the reality of sin, to the wonder of Christ's atoning death, to a trust in him who was raised from the dead and is returning to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom on earth? Why would anybody believe that message if our life isn't any different than the world around us or just barely different? Our lives, then, would be a testimony against the very things that we proclaim. If we think, act, love, watch, pursue, listen to, and bear the same attitudes as the world does, then the gospel of Jesus Christ simply must not be that powerful. That's the only conclusion that those who are watching us could come to. And it would be a fair conclusion. But when our lives are different and bear witness to the realities we proclaim... When our lives are consistent with our message, then the combined witness of the truth that we proclaim with the lives that live out that truth, then it's a powerful witness to the glory of Jesus Christ and to the gospel. It's a powerful testimony. Now, that's what Peter is going to address here in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. Namely this, that our holiness brings power to our witness and it brings glory to God. It brings power to our witness And it brings glory to God, ultimately. Now, there's many ways to approach this, but we're going to do, uh, we're going to look at it through three exhortations. And we're pulling from Peter's opening word here that I urge you or I exhort you. He's calling us Christians to realize and live according to the truths of the gospel. So we're going to look at it through three exhortations. And I'll mention them again throughout, but here they are. That we need to recognize our new identity in Christ. That we need to live consistent with our new nature by the Spirit, and we need to pursue holiness to the glory of God. And you'll notice there, there is a Trinitarian structure, which is really throughout all of the letter of Peter anyway. Let me read the passage, and then we'll look at it more closely. He says this in verse 11. 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, with these two verses, Peter's transitioning into the second half of his letter, really the second half in terms of themes or in terms of approach. In the first section that we begin looking at, so in verse 3 of chapter 1 all the way down to verse 9 of chapter 2, essentially as Peter is laying out before us as the church a theology of hope, a theology of hope, a theology of our salvation that is experienced now through the new birth, through faith in Christ, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, through the reality of him working in our lives, but a salvation that will ultimately be realized not now, but at the return of Christ. In other words, when he comes in the glory of the Father and all of the holy angels and he establishes his kingdom on the earth, at that moment our salvation and the reality of everything that is ours in Jesus Christ will be fully known. And that is our hope. It's our hope. It's what sets us off from the world. And that's what he established in the first part of the book. And now in this next section, in verses 11 through 12, he's giving us a transition. And he's really introducing this next section, which answers this question. How then should we live? How then should this hope, when it's a reality inside of us as God's people, work itself out in the world that is hostile to the truth? How does it work itself out in our conduct In other words, how are we who have been born again and united to Christ by the Spirit through faith to obtain an imperishable inheritance and a certain salvation? How are we to live out our love and our hope in Christ in a world that hates Christ and does not love him in return? As I mentioned, Peter's going to spend the rest of the epistle unfolding this for us, but here he provides for us a transition. And he does so in three entreaties. At least that's how we'll approach it. Three entreaties. Let's look at the first one. We are entreated then to pursue holiness by recognizing our identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. Our true identity in Christ. He says here at the beginning of verse 11 then, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. You can just stop there. I urge you as aliens alien and strangers. So the first thing that Peter is doing here is calling us to recognize what our identity is in Jesus Christ. Now, he's already started off. He already began his epistle with that. If you look back at verse one, he addresses those who are to whom he's writing uh, as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and so forth. He's addressing those who are a scattered people. Uh, persecuted people, really, who are living without, in terms of this world, a country. They're, they're scattered because of their testimony of their faith in Jesus Christ. He, he picks up on that idea again here, and he says, I urge you, beloved, as aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. Now, what Peter has just labored to do before this is to show us that we are, in fact, a people who are different than the world by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have been called out from the world. He says in verse 9, 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not retained mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, you're not like the world. You're different. You have been brought into a unique relationship with God. You're a called out people. To borrow the language of Jesus in chapter 17 of John, although we are in the world and although we live in this world and we live in a particular culture, in a different time, in a different place, in a particular land, though we are in the world, we are not of the world. In other words, we as God's people, by virtue of our relationship with Christ, do not share the world's morality. We do not share the world's values. We do not have the same worldview as our culture. We are different. We have different joys and different loves. And he picks that up, really, a word that would be easy to, to look over, to just kind of pass by. In that very, the very introduction here, he says, beloved. He refers to them as beloved, which is really a wonderful statement. Now, now, in one sense, and it's used this way in the New Testament very often, it communicates a kind of tenderness from Peter. Tenderness of Peter, who is an elder, who is a shepherd to these people. It's identifying a familial kind of love. In other words, a love that they have as family of those who are, who are in Christ, who belong to God together. It's really a, a tender word and a, and a humble word. But that's not how he's using it here. That's not how he's using it here. Some older translations and even some modern translations have uh, take this wrongly and they translate it as dear friends or dear loved ones, that kind of thing. But that, that misses the power and the intention of the word here. The idea behind calling them beloved and calling us beloved who are one with these believers is to say that you are beloved by God. You are beloved by God. And that is a tremendously wonderful statement. And he uses it that way in many other places in Scripture. I'm not going to take the time to go through them, but I will read one. He addresses them, for example, in Romans. He says, to all who are beloved of God in Rome called saints. Those who are beloved of God. And that's the way that Peter is using it here. It identifies our relationship with God as those who are loved by him, as those who are loved by him. He puts it in the beginning when he opened his epistle in this way, that those whom the Father has caused to be born again according to his great mercy, according to his great mercy, mercy bestowed on those whom he has loved before the foundation of the world. Beloved, if you are here and you are a Christian, you are loved by God, not with a spontaneous kind of love, not with a capricious kind of love, but with a love that is the settled and determined will of God before he created one atom in the universe. He knew you by name and he determined to save you from your bondage and your enslavement to sin through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and to call you into himself to give you every benefit and glory and blessing that his son has earned on your behalf that you might be with him forever. He's loved you. He's loved you. He's set his love on you. It's a settled love. It's a determined love. It is a certain love. It is a love that has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. 
So to say that you are beloved, when we use that language, it's not merely a a nice, tender term. It is a title that identifies us as a people who are the specially loved by God, who belong to him, who belong to him. He says this in 2 Timothy 1.9. He says, He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus, here it is, from all eternity. From all eternity. So if you are a Christian, you are someone who is uniquely and specially and eternally loved by God. And it's a love that is proven and shown because of what he has accomplished to demonstrate it, namely by providing redemption in his son. There's another aspect to this too, though, uh, this idea of beloved. It identifies, it implies our union with Christ, our union is Christ, this unique spiritual relationship that we have as believers with Christ by virtue of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of the Holy Spirit. God did in the Old Testament call his people beloved when he spoke to them as a nation. And there there he's marking them out as a covenant people, a nation whom he called out from all of the nations of the world whom he entered into covenant with. Of course, many of them were not believing. The whole history of Israel testifies that. But here, in reference to Christians, it has an even more unique sense, an even more uh, profound sense. Because this term beloved was used in a distinct manner in reference to the person of Jesus Christ. When he was baptized and before he began his ministry, you remember what the testimony was. The divine testimony from the Father from heaven. Remember it was? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Of none other could he say that. None other has he said that. But he said it of Christ. Because he is the eternal son whom the father has eternally loved and shared his glory before the foundation of the world. So when he said that to Christ, he was identifying a unique relationship that he had with the son of his love. He said at one other time, actually at the Mount of Transfiguration, the father spoke from heaven and he called and identified Christ as this is my beloved son. This is my unique son. This is my son who shares my own glory and on whom I have put my glory. So this is a unique term from the Christian perspective, from the perspective of the coming of Christ. And so we bear this identification in a unique sense of belonging to God in Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul would put it this way in Ephesians 1.6. He says, it's grace bestowed on us in the beloved. So we are beloved. When he says beloved, it is to say that we are loved by God eternally. We are loved by God eternally in his son with the same love that God has eternally loved Jesus Christ and loves him even more as the one who took on flesh and accomplished redemption out of obedience to him. So it is to say that we are loved even as Christ is loved by the Father because of our relationship to him. We're chosen by the Father in Christ. We've been called to Christ by the Spirit, and we are bound to the Spirit, by the Spirit, to Christ. He loves us as he loves the Son. And so that's a tremendous term. And it it has everything to do with how we think of ourselves and how we think of ourselves in relation to the world. But he uses one other title here. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. 
as aliens and strangers. It's already noted that he uses that identification right at the very beginning. And, and he uses that, as I said, to refer to those who are scattered throughout. But, but at the same time, it has a unifying idea as well. Because though you are scattered throughout the nations, though you are scattered out through lands that aren't your own, you are those who together belong to Christ and are the single people of God. You are together the ones who have come to a living stone, who are the dwelling place of God, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. No matter where you are, you are together these one people of God and the body of Christ. But here he uses alien strangers with highlighting our specific relationship to the world. And the idea just generally is this, uh, that the world is not our home. The world is not our home. That because we belong to Christ and because we've been brought into a kingdom that is ours but yet not fully realized here, we are dwelling in a place that is not our final dwelling place. It is not our ultimate home. So we are aliens and strangers. This is not our true country. Now there's a lot of places that this is demonstrated. Let me just remind you, that's really essentially the whole chapter of Hebrews it's the whole, that's the whole point of Hebrews, that those who lived by faith lived realizing that where they are now or where they were as they sojourned in this world was not their ultimate destination. But listen to how he describes it in verse 13 of Hebrews 11. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It was by this self-recognition, this identity of that Moses himself forsook all of the riches and the pleasures of Egypt as a prince in Egypt, that he might live faithful to the promised one, to the promised Messiah. So our identity and how we understand ourselves in relation to God and how we understand ourselves in relation to God and to this world and to the promises of God is foundational to our ability to live rightly in this world. Rightly in our relationship with God and rightly to the world. We are, as aliens and strangers, those who long for yet a better kingdom. A kingdom of righteousness. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in, on earth, as it is in heaven. That's why Paul said he could endure the suffering he did because he looks not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And it's important that we understand that this is temporary. This is temporary. This is not our final home. And it's particularly important when we understand that this present world is an environment that is hostile to holiness. It's hostile to holiness. We live in an environment that conflicts with who we are in the country that we're true citizens of. 
We live in a world and in a culture that is hostile to the truth of God and to righteousness and to holiness and to his glory. And so we need to understand that. He says this, that we're then not to love the world, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. You see, you can't understand that until we understand we're aliens and strangers here. That we're, we're surrounded by loves and desires and values that are not a part of the kingdom that we're a part of. And we can't love that kingdom and love the kingdom of God at the same time. We can't consider ourselves and live as if this is the fullness of our hope and at the same time think of ourselves as aliens and strangers in this world. Those two things contradict each other. We're a part of a kingdom that is coming, which actually will come after the destruction of this world. And last thing, and then we'll move on here. But he listened to what he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, but according, in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. We are aliens and strangers in a world that God is ultimately going to destroy, that is going to pass away. But we are part of a world and a country and a kingdom that will not pass away and that will be established forever. This is to say, then, that by understanding our identity as beloved by God, as aliens and strangers, that we understand we are in hostile territory and we are engaged in a war. And that's what he says next. The second part, then, is this, that we have to recognize our true identity And secondly, we need to live consistent with our new nature by the Spirit. Live consistent with our new nature by the Spirit. I'm going to go a little faster here. But look what he says. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul, and keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. He describes us here as fleshly lust, this, this inner reality and experience that causes conflict within a Christian. Now, you may, may know this, but he uses a word here, epithumia, which is just speaks of strong desire. As a term itself, we often automatically think of it means lust and it means bad. But as a term itself, it's morally neutral. It's morally neutral. Context determines whether it's good or whether it's a bad desire, whether it's a right object or a wrong object on which this desire is set. I won't go through the list, but let me give you a few examples of how this term is used. It's a good desire. It's used of Jesus when he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you, speaking of his disciples in the Last Supper. In Philippians 1.23, Paul says he has the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. In 1 Timothy, he says it's a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Of Luke 15, it's used of the son who desired to eat the food in his father's house. 
In other words, by that term, it can be used as good, but most often it is used in a negative sense. So, for example, in Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That is desire, an illicit desire, an ungodly desire. Now, now before we go in to, the, to where he's getting it in terms of the battle that we're in, I want to make just one brief note, and that's this. That we don't want to associate strong desires by themselves with sin. With sin. As a matter of fact, having strong desires are part of being made in the image of God. Jesus was intensely passionate. He had strong desires. He loved with great desire. He pursued holiness with great desire. For example... Not talking about Christ, but just talking about desire in general. Sexual desire is good. Sensual desire is good within the covenant of marriage, where God designed it to be expressed as a reflection is something that points us to the gospel, that points us to eternity, that points us to our ultimate intimate fellowship with God in Christ. So when set on the right right object, it's actually something that's good. God created the whole world for our pleasure, to enjoy with gratitude to him. Fleshly desires, what he's speaking of here, are sinful desires that are a distortion and perversion of the good things that God has given to us. So sexual desire, which is good within the right context, in fact, it is holy. It's an expression of worship. It is a delight to be enjoyed. When it's set on the wrong object, becomes sin. It becomes adultery, fornication, bestiality, incest, homosexuality, and other manners of sin. When set on the wrong object, it's what defines unbelievers. Ephesians 4.19, he says, They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality, and here's the key, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And it's that with greediness that defines the kind of lust that they are experiencing. So it's the desire to, to take the good things of God and turn it into something that is selfish, self-directed, where pleasure is an end in itself, and where it has no gratitude or concern for God and has no fear of God. In other words, it's a self-contained thing. And those are the kind of desires, that's the kind of spiritual reality that we are born into this world with. It's what defines the whole world outside of Christ, those kind of desires. We are unconverted, a slave to sin, unregenerate, a slave to sin. Different levels of expression, we mentioned that last week before baptism, but nonetheless in every part of our being enslaved to these kind of fleshly lusts. Those who are outside of Christ are enslaved to them. We were once enslaved to them as well. And again, they don't all aren't all as obvious. Some of them can these fleshly lusts can be present even with those who have a morally externally have a morally pure life. Remember what he said to the Pharisees: "Outwards you're like whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're what? Full of dead men's bones." All kinds of, in all manner of uncleanliness. They had fleshly lust, was what defined them as unregenerate and unconverted, and yet they were contained in a morally, externally morally pure life and religious life, supposedly committed to the glory of God. But now here he says, to us as Christians, you are to abstain from these fleshly lusts. 
these fleshly lusts. And so he defines what kind of lust it is. It's not a good lust, it's a fleshly lust. And again, this term flesh is used in different ways. It can define just the physical body. It's used that way actually in First uh, Peter, for example, he says, uh, all flesh is like grass. He's speaking there just of the physical bodies of human beings that live and have a certain glory and then die and go into the grave. But most often, this idea of flesh is, is a reference to that part of our humanity that is corrupt, that is in rebellion to God, that is ungodly, that is unrighteous. That's most often how it's used, as a metaphor of our humanity that is unredeemed. And these are the desires that assault the soul. And they're desires that are associated for the Christian of not of, of what we were at that time when we were before Christ enslaved to them. As a matter of fact, if you look uh, at verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, Obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. At one time, that's what defined you. At one time, that is, the time, that is who you were. He says it, defines it in more detail in verse 3 of chapter 4. He says, The time has already passed for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Those things that are associated with the spiritually dead. Those things that are associated with those who are outside of the life of Christ. But now here's, here's the distinction that we need to understand. He's talking, though, now to believers who's saying that you are to abstain from those things that formally defined your life. Remember how he began? You are those who are born again. You have been born again by imperishable seed, by the sovereign will of the Father. You have received a new nature. To put it in the language of Paul, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So if you are a believer, at the moment of your regeneration, which is accompanied by your faith and your repentance in Jesus Christ, if you are a believer who has received new life in Christ, you are engaged in an internal battle. It doesn't mean that your life from that point on becomes just peace and roses, that we'll know permanently in heaven. Here, while we have the peace of Christ, we have the love of him, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are engaged in a battle. And this battle is an internal battle, here described as with fleshly lust. So a Christian lives in this in-between state, this, this sort of already what we are in Christ, but we're not yet in Christ and we look forward to. So we have this new man that's described as a Christian. We are a new person. We have new desires, new loves, new hopes, new values, new truth we cling to, namely the truth as it is in Jesus. And yet we have this whole other complex of sinful desires in us. We have this whole other complex of disobedient desires within us. And it's described here in the language of war and of warfare. And, and if you have that conflict within you, if you have the struggles and the disappointments and the discouragements of sin, that actually is a good thing. If you don't have any of those struggles, if you don't have an internal conflict that you are seeking to work out in your life, that's actually a bad thing. 
It doesn't speak of your spiritual maturity. It probably speaks of your spiritual death, that there's an absence of life. Because Christians understand that we hate the sin that remains in us. That's why we long for the resurrection body that is incorruptible, that is spiritual under the complete control and power of the Holy Spirit without sin, like Christ. But if we're here, then we have fleshly lust, and the reality of our salvation is that we are engaged in a war. And the Holy Spirit is going to make sure, if you are a believer, you're engaged in this war with fleshly lust, because Galatians 5.17 says this, that the Spirit sets his desire against the flesh, so that we may not do the things that we please. So it's not only the fact that you have a new nature, you have a new nature that is energized by the Holy Spirit, who is constantly putting himself against and setting himself against the remaining sin that is in our lives. That means it's a good sign when you're convicted and when you're brought low and humbled by sin and turned to Christ. So he says here that you need to recognize your identity. Now, this identity puts you at conflict with the world, but it also introduces you into a conflict within yourself into a war that you are going to be engaged in for the rest of your life, but gives you a hope for the future. Wage war. Wage war. Scripture often pictures the spiritual life as warfare. You can think of that great picture in Romans, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, where it's our battle armor. The helmet, the belt, the shoes, the sword, and so forth. The breastplate of righteousness. It's a battle armor. We're a soldier in this world. And again, as believers, then, we are confronting and living differently, not only than the world and the things outside of us, but also by those inclinations within us. Now, again, believers essentially live with comfort. There are things as an unbeliever that I and all of us did with a totally clear conscience that would wreck my conscience as a believer, right? Being born again. Jesus said of the leaders that you're of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Of those who are dead, you indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind, but not so with the regenerate heart. So we're in a battle, and recognizing our identity and recognizing that we're in this battle is essential to our living rightly before the world and giving testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says. So we're in a war, and the location of this war is in the soul, which wage war against the soul. Now, Peter's going to use this seven times in First and Second Peter. I'm not going to walk through all of those, but essentially you could sum it up in this way. What does he mean by the soul? The soul is essentially this, that inner part of us, that immaterial part of our humanity that reasons, that feels, that lives, that desires, that experiences this world around us in relationship and relates to God. It's that inner part of us that is, in one sense, our truest self. It is our self. It is, our, it is the inner reality in our being that is us. And that's where the battle takes place. That's where the battle for holiness takes place, there in the deep depths of our heart, of our heart. As a matter of fact, James puts it this way, the writer of James' epistle. 
He, he describes our battle with sin in this way. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is, lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. He's saying that battle with temptation is going to begin on the inside. It's going to begin on the inside. You can have uh, accountability partners and programs on your computer until the cows come home. But the lust is primarily what you're dealing with on the inside. Anger is primarily what you're dealing with on the inside. Covetousness, which is what brought Paul to the floor, is what you're dealing with on the inside. It refers, it's the level of our attitudes and our affections and of our thoughts. If you remember, this is precisely what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7. Look, you can be religious and be fastidious and observe every detail again till the day you die. But it has nothing to do with holiness. Nothing at all. As a matter of fact, he says, there's nothing outside the man which can defile him. There's also nothing outside the man which can make him pure. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. What is this? He later explained to his disciples. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So again, it's not a matter of behavioral change. That's not the kind of battle that we as Christians are engaged in. We're engaged in a battle that goes very deep. Our thoughts, our intentions, our desires. If you remember when Jesus condemned the world before the flood, he said the thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil continually. So that's where we do battle. That's where holiness is going to be won or lost. That's where our testimony to Christ, to get this, because this is more in keeping with Peter here, that's where our testimony for Christ is going to be most evident and displayed. What are you doing with your thoughts? Where are you battling the lust of your heart? Where are you battling for holiness? Uh, he says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, I wanna, we're going to get to the last part here. And I'm going to mention these. And I'm going to go relatively quickly. We'll, we'll swing back to these things as we go through First Peter. But let me at least just mention them to you. How do we fight this internal battle? How do we wage war against the soul? How do we fight and battle the sin? Well, this is assuming that you're in the battle, that you are regenerate, that you do have a conflict within you with the sin that is in you, whether it be known or unknown, it's known to you by your conscience and the conviction of the Spirit. How do we fight it? Let me give you five ways. And again, I'm going to mention these quickly, um, but hopefully at least enough where you could uh, write them down and look at them later. First of all, the battle must be fought in the mind. It must be thought, fought in the mind. In the mind. That's really where spiritual battle takes place. You remember what he said in verse 13? Gird up the loins of your mind. Take up the loose ends of your mind. You must control your thought life. If your thought life is not under control and in obedience to the Spirit of God, then you've already lost. And I've already lost. Any of us. It's at the level of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says in Ephesians, we are to renew our mind. Renew our mind. In Romans 12, he says this. 
familiar words. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Of your mind. That's that's where spiritual battle takes place. You ask yourself, how are you doing in your thought life? How are you doing in your thought life? How are you doing in that secret place that you think no one else sees, and indeed we don't, but, but God does. So to win this battle, we must, we must understand that it begins in the mind. And we must set our mind, as Paul said in Colossians 3, on the things above. The things above. Away from those temptations here and set them on the things above. Secondly, the battle must be fought with Scripture. It must be fought with truth. It must be fought in the mind, and it must be fought with truth. Psalm 119, you know this, how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all of my heart, I have treasured, he says, your truth inside of me, inside of me. And it is that treasuring of the truth of God that enables the psalmist to walk in purity, in purity. In verse 2, First uh, Peter 2, he says this, Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Uh, the word is implied here, as we've already talked about. It's really long for the pure milk. In other words, all of those things related to the glory of our salvation in Christ. The word is implied because it's the pure milk. All of those things are revealed in Scripture, and he's just talked about Scripture. Like newborn babes, then long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you might grow in respect to salvation. That you might grow in respect to salvation. How does it work? Well, Scripture reveals God's nature, His promises. It gives us examples. It's good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Hebrews says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and there's no creature hidden from his sight, but we are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Scripture lays us bare. When we go to Scripture honestly and truthfully, it lays us bare before God. It exposes everything. God, who has infinite knowledge of humanity, who bears his image, is the one who has revealed his word to lay before us. His image bears the reality of who we are and who he is. And he's done so in Scripture. In Scripture. So if you're going to do battle, you have to do battle by building on the foundation of Scripture, of understanding the word of God in which we have the mind of Christ. Number three, we have to do battle... At the level of our minds and our thoughts, and we have to do battle by scripture, and we have to do battle has to be fought in prayer. In prayer. In prayer. Seeking God's help in avoiding remaining and avoiding sin and remaining faithful to Him, even in the midst of trials, as they're experiencing here, and as we experience in a world that contradicts and goes against everything righteous and holy. So Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. What? Keep us from temptation. Lead us not in temptation. The idea there is keep us from any kind of testing that would be greater than we are able to overcome. Keep us from ourselves and those things in which we would be tempted to sin. We're asking for God's help to remain strong in those things that are a test to our faith. 
And so prayer seeks God at that level. It wrestles with God over the temptations and the lusts that reside in our own heart. And let me just make a little brief comment here. Uh, When you pray, when you pray, you need to pray very specifically. So often we pray general kind of prayers. Lord, I'm sorry I sinned. Lord, help me not to sin. No, you need to be very specific and get down to the root of your sin. Lord, I'm wanting this. I was thinking this because I was desiring something else. I was not loving you. Help me to love you. Help me to turn away from this desire. You need to pray very specifically, very openly. You need to, before God and in prayer, chase down every single motive and intention that the Spirit of God reveals to your conscience and wrestle through it. That way we start to really deal with sin at the root. And of course, when we're praying Scripture, He helps us to do that because it is Scripture that lays us bare. So we battle the lust by prayer, and we also do it by maintaining fellowship with God, 1 John 1, 3-7. I won't, won't go there. But we mean to maintain fellowship with God, and prayer is an essential part of that. With The nearer we are to God, the weaker the desire for sin within us, and the more we hate sin. The further away we are from God, the less sin is offensive, and the more desirous it becomes to us. So prayer lays us hold near to God. And we need to confess our sin and keep short accounts. So it must be in the mind. It must be by prayer. It must be by scripture. And the battle must be fought with discipline and self-control. Look at what he says. Abstain. Uh, It's in present tense here. The idea is that you continually abstain. Abstaining is a part of your life. That you continually avoid anything that would lead or strengthen fleshly lust within you. It's a call to discipline and to self-control. And again, it means being disciplined in the mind and the thought life. But it includes external disciplines as well. Paul tells Timothy, flee from youthful lust. One more. The battle must be fought with the affections. It must be fought with the affections and in the affections. The things that we love. The things that most pull out from us desires and convictions. And this is really, again, as we're pouring over scriptures, we're confessing sin, as we're praying... As we're setting our mind on the things above, we're asking God to transform our affections to those things that are eternal. He says, 1 John 3, that if we have our hope set on him, Christ, and being conformed to his image, then we'll be pure even as he is pure. We'll begin to love those things that are a part of our home where Christ is. Uh, George Whitfield said this. I ran across this actually in his journals the other day. He says this, which really says, he says, I drank of God's pleasures out of a river. Oh, that all were made partakers of this living water. They would never thirst after the sensual pleasures of this wicked world. When our pleasures are satisfied in Christ, the sensual pleasures of this wicked world dim in their, in their glory. Lastly, and I'm going to mention this quickly. Last point, that we are to pursue obedience for the glory of God. Pursue obedience for the glory of God. Let me summarize this simply like this. We'll come back to it next week, but I want to I at least mention it here. He says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So again, I said that our, our witness either affirms or goes against our testimony of Jesus Christ. 
Our obedience takes place in a hostile environment. It's going to come with wrong kind of accusations. But he says, because of your good behavior, they may glorify God on the day of visitation. What does he mean by that? Oh, again, let me just simplify it. He's meaning this. This is the idea. Visitation, that term sometimes is used, particularly in the Old Testament, to refer to God's judgment in a few places like Isaiah 10.3 and, and others. But here, Peter isn't using it with that emphasis of judgment. The idea of glorifying God on a day of visitation, which would be more accurate, there's no definite article, on a day of visitation, is to say that those who are now maligning you will, on at that time of Christ appearing, offer to him glory. They will glorify him. That's the idea. And the, the implication... The implication here is that as they observe your deeds and therefore received the power of a credible life of the things that are proclaimed about Christ, God used that for transforming grace within them so that those who are maligning you ultimately will glorify God with you when he returns. That's the idea. So our life is crucial to the power of the gospel message. Now we'll pick that up with just a little bit more detail next week and move into verses 13 and on where he says, how does that look in our life? But my question to you is, what does your life bear witness to? What does your thought life bear witness to? What does your life in this world bear witness to? The reality of the glories of Jesus Christ or does it deny those realities? We come now to this table to present ourselves before the living Christ as he's commanded us to do. As we take the bread and the element, we are expressing our obedient faith to him, our love for him, our trust in him who is our soon and returning king. We are committing ourselves to him to live consistent with that kingdom in holiness and truth. Uh, so as the men come forward, as I pray, uh, be praying Uh, as you take these elements and make sure that your life is right with the Savior. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, this table. May you use it even now as we together remember your death and your resurrection, the reality of your presence among us by your spirit, the reality of every promise that is yes and amen in you, that you would encourage us to the end of living holy and obedient lives, that you ultimately may be glorified. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.